Welcome to the Big Self Podcast. We are a learning community for people at a career crossroads, ready to rejoin their soul and their role. We have long-form conversations about self-awareness, relationships, tapping into your inner genius, and building sustainable habits. We are led by our questions. We're curious. We're storytellers. And the more we learn, the better we get. And there are people all around us who have done the work. We think they have a lot to say about how we can discern and activate our own purpose. I'm Shelley Prevost. I'm an educational psychologist and the founder of Big Self. And I'm Chad Prevost. I'm a media specialist. I write, research, and produce content across industries. To learn more about how to join the tribe, go to ShellyPrevost.com slash Big Self Society. Let's get started. We are super excited to have our good friend, LaQuisha Ewing, in the house, literally in our house. (laughs) She is here today on the Big Self Podcast. And if you have ever had the encounter of meeting LaQuisha, and if you live in Chattanooga, Tennessee, the chances are you have. She's everywhere. You will be asking yourself, am I living my best self? Am I... Am I doing the best I can? Am I living to my fullest potential? And the thing is about LaQuisha, she is she is what I call queen energy. When she walks into a room, she it elevates everybody. She walks in, she's got this energy that just comes out of her and it affects everybody around her. And if you don't know that about yourself, you need to. I think I just learned something about <laughs> Welcome to the show, LaQuisha. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on, LaQuisha. I mean, among other things, you know, she's consulted with corporations, foundations, faith-based agencies, school districts, and nonprofits using her customized approach, which we're looking forward to learning a little bit about, to developing the appropriate mindset for success and growth. And uh, I was really taken by, by this quote amongst the many that I've seen, real estate investor Brian S. Harris says, LaQuisha has a hidden skill of edutainment, (laughs) which allows her to speak about a particular subject with explosive confidence and conviction, which captivates a crowd and leaves them hanging on her every word. She is one of the best I've seen in the business world in my two decades as an entrepreneur. So LaQuisha, yes, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So for people that are living under a rock and don't know who you are, I would love to take a few minutes and for you just to tell everybody about you. Oh, wow. So, you know, it's always uh, it's always an honor to sit with good friends, um, but it's also a task to talk about oneself. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to do I'm going to do my best. I think the most important thing is I, I'm not a Chattanooga native. I'm actually from Memphis, um, but I've been in Chattanooga for roughly 15 plus years. Um, I tell people while I wasn't raised here, I grew up here. And and we can elaborate on that a lot. Um, I came here at 23 years old, fresh out of undergraduate school, bright eyed and ready to save the world. Um since that time, I have, you know, gotten a couple of years, not not many, just got a couple of years uh, older, and I learned so many different things. I worked in education. I helped to start a nonprofit here around public education advocacy. Um, I've been able to launch a tech company, sell a tech company with my husband. Um, I've launched a consulting firm, or we have a real estate investment firm. And then the most important thing about myself is that I'm an evangelist for the Church of God in Christ. And uh, a 
amongst above anything else. I love Jesus, um, preaching the gospels, teaching people who they are, um, that they have purpose. Divine purpose is the most important thing um, to me. Uh, I'm married. Uh, my husband and I have no kids. Um, however, I found out about eh, 11 years ago that I had two brothers um, by my biological father. Um, my parents remarried. Uh, well, yeah, they remarried um, when I was younger, much younger. So I didn't really know my dad. But I found out uh, through divine intervention um, as a, a woman came to our home church back in Memphis, met my mother. They didn't know one another. Um, my mom passes out her phone number if you need someone to pray with you and things like that. And uh, before you know it, um, they figured out they had a common denominator in my father. Um, That was around 2009. (laughs) Wow, that must have been quite a a learning experience. A a huge one in that I was like 28, 27, 28 years old, uh, had been married a little under a year. Um, My father had some some issues with the law, found himself in prison. Um, The brothers, the older brother of my younger brothers, um, not my brother, but he uh, he also was arrested and their mother passed away. Um, And so these boys who I knew for four months, um, I met them in December and March, uh, their mother passed. And by the summer, my husband and I um, had taken them in. And so I've actually raised my half brothers since they were seven and 11. They're 21 and 19 now. Wow, yeah. that's so you're helping do some uh, some repair from maybe some some damage that's been done with what you're doing. But I, I know that like too, um, Laquisha, you're do you're you've got kind of a system that that I, I've seen uh, and it's called unlearn everything. Yes. yes. What, what was the inspiration b- behind that? Oh my goodness. Uh, that too is a testimony in that. Um, for all intents and purposes, right, I did what was right. And those of you in, in radio world can't hear the air quotes that I'm showing them. Um, but I did everything right. Right. So I, I went to school. I, you know, did well in school, graduated from high school, graduated from college, did all the things. You get this great job. You know, um, I dated my college sweetheart who I ended up marrying. I preserved myself for marriage. I went to church. I served. I did all of these things. And I was about 32-ish, 33, and it looked like my life was great. I mean, I had everything that you ascribe to have. And I told someone, if I had to walk past me on the street, I wouldn't have known me. Um, I I had been an active member in this life that I created, but I really was not happy. Um... And then I started looking at things through that lens of like, okay, so I'm not happy, but what is it that I'm not happy about? And what I found was that there were a lot of things that had been taught to me. There were a lot of things that had been um, basically laid out for me that weren't really the path that my life was supposed to take. It wasn't that it was wrong. It's just not what I was supposed to do. Right. And, uh, and so I started just looking at everything and I'm like, man, like, where did I learn that? Like, where did I learn this? You know, in order to in order to uh, consider yourself a success, you always have to be ahead of the pack. Where did I learn that? Um, you know, that that success is ascribed to a uh, a monetary value that you bring into the economy versus the value that you offer your family. Where did I learn, you know, that as a woman, you have to come out assertive, but not aggressive? Like, where did I learn all of these things? And what I realized that a lot of the things that I identified were things that I really needed to unlearn because they were actually the things that were choking the life out of me um, because they were unrealistic. I tell people I don't believe in work life balance. 
that's you know I don't believe in work life balance. I don't think I don't think it exists. I told someone the day that my professional life balances with my my marriage, I got a horrible marriage. <laughs> yeah, but well, I want to ask. Yes. Uh, so when you were going through that process of what, how did I get here? Was there like a defining moment? Did something happen that kind of broke you open to to ask those deeper questions, or is it more of just kind of this building? awareness that I w- I'm not happy. Yes. Yeah, so the thing that, um, that I spoke of earlier about my brothers, finding out about my brothers, um, it put a mirror up to my life because with the exception of the fact that we had different mothers, my mom is an amazing mother. Shout out to mama, uh, Marilyn Massey there in Memphis. Hey mama. Yes. <laughs> and with the exception of that, my brothers and I had the same start, right? When you think about it biologically, we had the same start, but their life was very different than mine. Um, and I started to look at all of the things that I've been afforded, all the things that, that, that had been taught to me. And then all of a sudden these kids show up and my husband and I had a plan. Did you guys ever have a plan when you got married? Oh yeah. Like, of course. So we, we had the, the three step plan that turned into a 10, 10 step and those do not always work out. Right. And that's yeah. what happened. And so I couldn't, my life was happening and I couldn't control it. So for the first time in my life, something was happening and then people would say, oh, well you can control that. You didn't have to get those kids. But really, mm. as an advocate for children and public education, that's just not who you were with, to walk away from that. But I didn't know who I was until yeah. I got those kids. Okay, it was it was who I was through a job. It wasn't who I was as a person, and it took them to be that mirror for me to be like, you know, this is not just a job. This is not just a paycheck. This is really at the core of who I am as a as a human being. This is who I am. I can't turn my back on Yeah, this. I want to make sure people hear that, that, sure. that that sense of action and responsibility can unlock something in you that you didn't even know was there. Right. I thought all of the, you know, you get trained through schooling. I thought all of the education and the training that I had was where I was, uh, in my life professionally, and therefore that's who I was. Um, and the irony is that that's it's it's really not who I was because of that. It is who I was, but not because of that, right? Yeah, because yeah. of the other. Pieces. Well, tell us uh, the you've got some steps that oh, yeah. you talk about with your unlearning approach. Yes, and so if you could share um, a few of those with us, that would be awesome. And and I'd like to add mm-hmm. to that. There there are ten steps I've I've noticed, and and all of them look like they're they're somewhat of a process. That, that it's not like an easy step. And I'm also wondering, um, you know, do you necessarily have to do the steps in in a particular order? Well, no, I, I wouldn't say in an order. I would say that it's it's cyclical, right? That um, you will find that you're going to do them. Um, in different areas of your life, maybe at different times. Um, I don't think they have to be sequential, um, but I do think that they all have to be present. Now, the the steps that you're speaking of, I call those kind of my high arching goals. So you're talking about um, things like focusing, uh, embracing who you are, focusing on your purpose. Um, but I actually have a blueprint. Unlearn is actually an acronym. And, you know, what I, what I ask for, you know, I literally asked God during this time, how did I get here? What what are the things that I did to unlearn? It's easy to just say to people, unlearn, you know, just, just, you know, something now, no, no, don't know it. Right. It's not realistic. <laughs> um, and so I literally asked for a prescription of what I did. And so unlearn is an acronym. Um, the U mean, uh, basically stands for unpacking every myth or fact 
about any situation. So that's how you start the unlearning process. Like if you believe a particular thing, you have to unpack it. Okay. So the first yeah. step is stopping and, and checking out your beliefs. Yes. And really looking at what are the myths and what are that the I myths? even have to be aware of that I need to unlearn. Yes. So that's where that first step is. One of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite things to hear. Um, I have a, a lot of people that I speak uh, speak with about relationships, uh, intimate relationships. And one of the things that I, I always laugh at is when people say to me, "You know, there are no good men out there," or "You know, all women are gold diggers." <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm like, "Okay, great, this is amazing." So let's deal with that, right? So there are no good men out there. Tell me about your dad. Tell me about your brother. Tell me about your uncle. Oh, I have my dad is great. My brother's such an amazing father. My uncle has been there. He taught me how to ride a bike. And they go through all of these nostalgic stories. And I say, okay, so stop. Brother, uncle, dad. Are they men? Yes. Would you consider them good men? Yes. Okay, therefore, all men. By are, logic, right. not all men are, are, are bad. Are bad, right? So let's deal with that. And so then I say, okay, well, who, who are you basing this off of? And they talk about all their broken relationships. And I say, okay, so all the men that you've dated are bad. Okay, so let's unpack that. And we just kind of keep peeling the onion yes. until people realize that, you know what? what you There are some factual pieces in here that have built this myth that you have. So the fact is, every guy that you've dated has been a jerk. That is a fact. <laughs> the myth, though, is that you've dated all guys and you can now make this claim. So how do we do that? So the, un, the, the U is unpack every myth and fact. The N, then, is to narrow your focus for clarity. So once we've unpacked the myth, we found the factual information. Okay, so let, let's narrow it. So where are you meeting these guys? Yeah, that's good. Yeah. At the club, at the, you know, wherever. Okay. So maybe all men that you meet at the club are bad. Yes. <laughs> right? So now we're narrowing. So clarifying. I, yes. I, um, I had a meeting this week and I uh, was talking about stress and burnout mm -hmm. with the group and they were bringing up a bunch of, you know, this stresses me out and this stresses me out and this creates my burnout. And I was aware that there's so much belief. And I said, guys, these are beliefs. These aren't true. This isn't a true factual uh, scenario you're talking about. The way that you're interpreting it is a stressor in your life. Right. And I love that the idea of kind of getting people to pause and evaluate what is the myth or the belief that is at the core of this and then narrowing it down. And the, the question I ask a lot is, is it true? Is it true? Is it true? What's you, the story you're telling yourself? What is the story Renee you're telling Brown, yourself? That's yes, that's right. <laughs> oh, we love Queen B. Yes. Um, but is it true? And, um, and we'll keep going because yeah. I'm assuming we're going to start talking about how to reframe that too. Right. So, well, the L, so we get here to the pivot. So the L is, the first actionable, really real actionable thing, leave all negative past ideals and values behind. Mm. You have to, you know, the things that you bring in. Well, that sounds much harder <laughs> said than done, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. So how do you actually leave them behind? Well, most of us, most of us are very definitive in, in what we believe, right? 
but we don't know why we believe it. And that's why you start this work. Because once you figure out why you believe a particular thing, then you can now, you can either champion for it or you can actually realize that maybe I shouldn't. And so that that's what happened to me. I had to realize that there are a lot of things that I was out on the field fighting for because that was the historical thing to do. That was what I was taught to do. That is what, you know, um, what my family does. That it, And then I started to think like, but do I really believe that? Do I, you know, do I personally believe that? How do I leave? I can't leave it behind until I know why I believe it. And most people don't take the time to unpack why they believe. A yes, it's thing. it. Most of this stays real unconscious. Yes. And I think that's I love what you're saying. It's a tool to help people get conscious. Yes. And then once they get conscious, they can evaluate like, what? how do I leave it behind? What's the work I have to do around Unlearning this. Yes. Yes. The E, expect good outcomes always. I tell people I've never lost a day in my life. I win or I learn. That's it. It's a mindset. Yes. Everything that, you know, that that doesn't work in my favor favor doesn't have to be seen as an upset or failure, disappointment. It's a matter of perception. So if I say I lost, then I did. I'm going to find myself moping, depressed, whatever. But if I'm like, you know what? Ah, I could have done that differently. And I start Mm. digging through what went wrong. Now I'm learning something and I'm not internalizing that. I'm actually looking at what I could have done differently. This one's hard for me. Oh, for sure. It's hard for all of us. I'm on a mic talking. I I hate failing. I wish I didn't. I wish I was more resilient and I wish I had a... Um, a quicker way to get from A to B mm-hmm. if it's a failure, mm-hmm. but it really is tough for me. I think um, that's partly my personality. Like it's supposed to work. You know, if it doesn't work, then that's something about me. So this is probably the stage that I would I'd have to do more work around. And and when you think about it though, Shelly, you think about the again the mindset. So failure is a is a state of completion. Someone asked me, I'm going to flip it. I'm going to flip it. Someone asked me one day, they said, LaQuisha, how have you um, succeeded this? Like, how have you gotten to this level of success? How have you succeeded um, at this point in your life? And I said, I've succeeded because I haven't. And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, succeed is to say that something is complete. It's done. I'm always on, as long as I'm on this side of heaven, (laughs) I have work to do. That's uh, kind of awesome. I like that. You know, what? We're, one of our themes, I think, that we keep trying, we try to explore in, in each of these episodes is this concept of failure and, you know, do you have to, ha- do you have to experience it? And um, you're saying it, it's how you learn almost. So you're really embracing like the, the, the fact that you have to fail. You have well, and the thing about it is the failing, the failing of it is again, it's all in the vocabulary, right? So when you see a when you see a toddler learning to walk and they fall, you fail. F-E-L-L. <laughs> you <laughs> fail. Nobody's right. telling, you know, a a 10-month-old that they failed. F-A-I-L-E-D. Because they fail. Because they fail. Yeah. Right? So one is a present state and one is a completed state. So you fail in a moment does not mean that you failed at walking. Right? And so that's how I look at life. I'm like, so this is a moment where I fell down 
And so I had to figure out, you know what? It's probably not a good idea to walk on the couch. Well, it's not stable. And not also, gonna- <laughs> you know, if you're if you're not falling down, like if you're if you're trying to get back, I was just mm-hmm. I think talking about this with you, uh, Shelly, last week on last week's episode. If you're not trying, you you're not falling. Like in yes. skiing, you know, if you hey, you could just be relaxed within what you know, mm-hmm. and it's it's all chill. But if you're really trying to get better, you're gonna fall. Yes. Mountain biking. There's other analogies. Um, so you could say, Hey, I could just rest easy in my little comfort thing and not fail. Right. Yeah. So we shouldn't be afraid of failure. We should not be afraid of failure. We should be, be willing to take risk. Um, which brings me to the A, which is arm yourself with new information daily. Like arm your, I, I read so many things. I listen to podcasts. I, you know, watch documentaries while people are talking about what's happening on Netflix. I'm like, man, you guys should go to the documentary section. Did you see this thing? You know, um, I just, I, there's so much information available. We, we live in that age, right? Anything you want to know about, you can learn about. Uh, I told my 17 year, well, 16 year old godson, um, I said, you know, I believe in public education. I mean, or I'm sorry, in uh, postgraduate education. Um, I do that, go to college, but I need you to understand something. If it takes you four years to learn anything, Anquisha is going to run rings around you because I can learn anything in 24 hours on YouTube. So there's so much information. Arm yourself with information. Um, and then the, the R. I think this the R is the biggest for me. Recognize necessary patterns and habits for growth and improvement. Mm, talk about that. Yes. Yeah, I'm going to talk about that in regards, because the, the, the area of my life where I learned that the most was in marriage. <laughs> Ah, All right, let's go. Let's go. You know, so my husband and I, you know, we've we've been married for 11 years. We've been together for 22 years, just celebrated an anniversary um, two weeks ago. And so the thing that I know, so Julian is, is his name. And so when Julian get, makes me mad... All right. I'm going to, I'm going to take it on when he makes me, he didn't, well, let me change that. When I get mad at Julian, he didn't make me mad. I chose to get mad. There's a pattern that I saw. I would get mad. I would stop talking. I could make someone disappear. Like, I really think I'm a superhero. Like, I could make you disappear out of my life. Like, I will walk past you. I will... You have become invisible. Oh, if there were a land called Passive Aggressivo, I would be the president. (laughs) (laughs) Shelly and I have learned a little bit about that, too. I don't know what you're talking about. So that, you know, that was the way that they, and and what would happen is I would get upset. I would stop talking to him. Um, I would go and get my own dinner. Like I went like my dinner, like I didn't care if anybody else. You're on your own. Yeah. Like I'm not even like, I'm not even really with y'all. You know, I'm just here. I'm visiting this Airbnb. Uh, (laughs) And so this was a pattern though. And, And so what would happen is he would give me my space. I would be mad because I felt like he should have come and talked to me sooner. And it would just be this weird orchestrated interaction with with him. But I started to realize that I had a pattern in this, right? So like when I get upset, I'm looking for him to be like clairvoyant and, and telepathic and know that I'm upset, know why I'm upset and come and act the way I want him to act. But I never was communicating this verbally, right? That was a pattern that I had, not only with Julian, I found that it was a pattern that I had in a lot of areas of my life. I shut down. It's almost like I hit reset and disappear all at the same time. It's like, boom, this didn't happen. I'm going to do this. You're not even a real person anymore. And I was like, man, that is so unhealthy. And I went back to the beginning. Like, 
why do I do that? Okay, so how that process, because sure. I think this whole unlearning could mm-hmm. process leads to that. Mm-hmm. Like that's the pivotal step. Mm-hmm. It's it's not enough to know that you have beliefs that don't work for you or that you've learned them from somewhere and that you even want to unlearn them. Right. But that the the kind of making the shift is so hard for us. So how do you how do you do that? Like how when you recognized this pattern, mm-hmm. what did you start doing to re, rebuild it, replace it? Well, the first thing that I did was within myself. I, you know, I had, because just because you recognize something don't mean that you want to, you can recognize and not acknowledge. Those are two different Absolutely. things, right? So it's like, ah, I see that, but mm, I'm not going to see it yeah. at the same time. That's just so, who I am. That's just, that's I, a lot of people just say yeah, that. That's, that's just who I am. Accept right. it. So you know? I, I recognized that it was me, but I acknowledged that I needed to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And so I started, again, this is where my faith come in, uh, comes in, guys. I started really just praying, um, asking for revelation about myself and, and, you know, even in reading, you know, like God send me to books and people and, you know, and so I started doing work on me because what I found was this wasn't a habit that just came out of, out of thin air. Mm-hmm. This was a learned behavior. You learned that somewhere. And why did I learn it? Yeah. And, and it, it brought me to a place where I unpacked a lot of issues that I had. I had daddy issues. Uh, with my father not being in my life, but even though I had a stepfather, you know, it's so all it's it, it boiled down to trust. So when I got through all it boiled down to trust because doing it that way, hmm. I got to maintain a semi-positive energy in my in my coming and going, but I didn't have to take down the barbed wire fence mm-hmm. to be vulnerable. Yeah. That, oh, yeah. That, that, that V word, right? Yes. And yeah. so, um, and, and that's still something even in my professional life that I am yet working on when it comes to vulnerability. I'm, I'm much better at it than I was. Um, but that's a huge piece. Well, that, you know, I, I think it's, that is, a, I keep see, saying easier said than done. Mm-hmm. I think it's hard to be vulnerable for a lot of reasons. There's a reason I've, I've noticed like in, in the workplace at times we're like, well, you, you don't want to be vulnerable. There's, you gotta kind of be protected. You, but they're coming uh, yeah. for you anyway, Chad. <laughs> so, so just what open di- up. What difference does it make? Well, you're free. Ma- maybe. Uh, okay, I have something to learn here about that. Then <laughs> I, I admit that uh, being, you know, th- there's a, there's there's a risk in the vulnerability. Yes. You know, when do you jump off and take that that faith leap, so to speak? Yeah, and that. So I would say that there, you know, there are gauges that we have to know within ourselves, right? So every everything that I'm saying is not prescriptive for every situation. Um, there are definitely places where the risk Red signs and flags are, you know, blaring at me. I wouldn't Not dare safe. expose. No, mm-hmm. I wouldn't dare expose certain levels. Um, but there are some things um, that, for my sake, I have to get it out. I have to share that. Um, because if not, it's detrimental to my growth in that moment. Um, and so you have to be able to know who you are to gauge those times, um, be it personal or professional. Mm. So I think, are we at the last one, the end? Oh man, I told I forgot we were doing those. Uh, yeah, no, I'm joking. Because the R was yeah, the that was yeah. the big one. Did y'all yeah. hear that? The R recognize a, necessary patterns, the patterns for growth and improvement. Because people think, oh well, once I got it, I got it. Well, there's always a place for improvement. Absolutely. Yeah, I like the I like the the acronym of it because I'm I'm able to remember these these ten steps. Is it ten? Are we at uh, at the second N? There's not ten. Uh, it's oh, okay. <laughs> All right, so there's yeah. another yeah. N. Yeah, that the and the final N is nurture only those things that yield positive results. I would never pour water on a burnt tree. That tree 
is never going to grow. Not a burnt tree, not a cut down tree, but a burn tree, a, a sense tree. I, I like that metaphor. <laughs> will never grow again. It's cinched to the core, right? Yeah. And so why am I pouring fresh energy, thoughts, um, interaction on that thing? I only nurture those things that will yield positive results. And how do we nurture? Like I'm sitting here thinking about the habits in my life, these practices, yes. these things that I've doing, done a lot of work around the last couple of years especially. Um, and with clarity, thinking about how do I nurture them? What are the practices? What's the water that we're pouring on it? So the water can be, uh, it can vary. It can be anything from um, time and energy to um, repair. Mm. And let me explain the the repair. Um, There are a lot of times that the water is the attention that you need to give to something that was broken while you were going through all these other steps. Um, Oh, okay. (laughs) And so I need to pour in the crevices that I created while I was broken. Um, I need to pour. I need to, because the thing about it is that friendship, um, that opportunity was actually a life raft for me that I missed because I was so broken. I hadn't recognized my patterns. Um, I didn't expect positive outcomes. I, I was accusatory. All these, I mean, you can actually follow this, uh, this chain all the way back up. Now the letters don't work it in spelling thing, you know, no on something, right? <laughs> but but if you follow it back up, you'll see, you can actually figure out what you need to water and with what by following it all the way back up. Oh wow! So yeah, so the, the, there's different parts. It, 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 they could work together consecutively, but you have to identify. You know what? What stage are you at? What are you maybe needing to deeper dive into? Let's. Uh, this has been great, kind of learning a, about self stuff. I'm. I'm curious if we could slightly shift the conversation because you do a lot of work with organizations. Yes. What are some of the most common things that you see as cultural problems in organizations? Oh man! All right. So. Um, one thing I, I would say, the first thing I would say is um, a proper narrative around history um, of that organization. Um, I think that there there's a story that's written and then there's a story that's told mm. about any organization. Um, and some of those, so, sometimes those things are conflicting. Um, and so when I talk about history, not just how you came to be and who were the you know, the chief trustees and the founding uh, organizational members, but in the grander narrative of either your industry and or the community in which it sits, what is your history? Um, because I think sometimes people don't have a true perspective of who they are in the long-term story of either the industry and or the city or, or, or community they live in. Um, history is huge. If you don't know who you are, you don't know where you are. You you come up with all kind of very flowery things. Uh, it gives context. It, it and there's there's a humility to that. Yes. I think that that positions yourself inside inside of a larger story. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something about that that diminishes the ego. Yes. If if you're open and aware and and see it that you don't. It's not just about you. It's not just about. You, there's a there's a larger context here. And, and anything that was created, there was a vote, right? When we think about, let's flip this to business. One of the things that we tell startups all the time is, you know, find the gap in the marketplace. 
Like mm-hmm. when you're creating, like what is your business? What problem is it solving? Well, anything that came to be, if it's for profit or not for profit, um, industrial or education, like whatever it is, there was a gap, there was a need. Go back and figure yeah. out when that thing was created, post reconstruction, public education had a purpose. Yeah. Is that the same story that we should be telling in 2020? I, okay, I'm just now pulling all this together. You are a historian. Am I? Yeah. It, uh, sir, even what you just did with yeah. the unlearning, mm-hmm. that you get to the end and you follow the thread back. Yes. Like you, that's how you kind of rework. Uh, you unpack it and then you you have to go back yes. to the history, to context. And then from there, you can relearn, fill the gap, move forward in a healthier way. So, so one of the things that just because we're here, I have to, I have to plug this. Um, so you guys again, can't see this. So this is, uh, I actually got this bracelet in Ghana uh, on a trip. I went with a couple of friends, but this is called a Sankofa bird. Um, and so a, a group of friends and myself founded a, we're five years old now, um, five years ago, a African-American giving circle, and it's called the Sankofa Fund for Civic Engagement. And it's focused on African-American led and or focused organizations, projects, missions here in the city of Chattanooga. Um, so to date, we've given out $130,000. Um, we have a goal of fifty to give out $50,000 in this fifth year, um, and we think we're going to make it. But the, the definition of Sankofa it's a in drinking West African term, and it's a bird. If you look at it, it's a bird. He has an egg in his mouth. His head is pointed backwards, but his feet are pointed forward. And it means to go back, to fetch, in order to move forward. We'll have to put that in the show notes for this podcast. <laughs> yes. So that is, so, so that is uh, again, that's, I mean, that's kind of a part of who I am um, as an African-American woman in this country, understanding that there were things and people and incidents and events that got me to where I am right now. Uh, one of my favorite shirts says that, um, that I am my ancestors' wildest dream. <laughs> when I think about where I get to sit, to sit here with you guys, to to be able to come and go and travel and and learn and I mean just very simple things, right? Have a life that other people that look like myself in this country only dreamt of. I am their wildest dream. I love that. So I know we're still talking about organizational sure. yes. cultural work, but I, I do want to because you and I have had conversations around equity mm-hmm. and the um, the needs in our local community, our national community. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are doing international work. Like I, especially as, as I'm moving forward with big self and you know, that these pillars that, that I'm talking about, you're talking about growing and learning um, self care comes up a lot. You know, how do you take care of yourself? And some of the pushback is that it's, not accessible for everybody. Yes. Um, so I wanted to talk with you about this, you, these ideas around um, how do we make concepts of becoming your fullest, whole, most whole, wise self available for everybody when we have such uh, imbalanced systems of oppression that still exist in our, our society? I think that, you know... Um some of this work on an individual level, um, people do in a default manner. Um, it may not be the healthiest things that they do, but they're considering it self-care, right? They're, I'm, I'm, I'm taking my me time. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And what you'll find is that a lot of people will take up things that ultimately um, may not be super healthy for them, right? So they become um, alcoholics, right? So they yeah. take up drinking, they take up um, smoking, they take up things that these. This is my chill time. I hear it all the time. This is my downtime. Yeah. Um, and you're taking in things that ultimately aren't gonna, you know, be be helpful to you in the long run. Um, I do think that it is somewhat of. I hate to say this, but somewhat of an elitist ideal to think that people who are living um, from paycheck to paycheck, hand to mouth, um, just trying to make it. When you when you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Um, when we get to the this this what we're talking about, this kind of self awareness, emotional stability, that's way up the pyramid. Um, I'm trying to make sure that you know my kids have food, that I have a roof over my head, that you know we have the basic needs. I really don't have time to go to a hot yoga class, <laughs> right. nor do I have the funds. Yeah. Um, you know, and so some of the things that I think people think of when it comes to self-care is pretentious. But I think there are a lot of things that people can do on their own. But again, having the mental space to pause your life, that's a whirlwind. That's a hurricane in many cases. Um, it's unrealistic for a lot of folks. Yeah, I know. It's I think we're getting at something where like self-care is seen as a kind of a privilege, right? At least a middle class problem for, you know, like, um, oh, oh, you have you get to like try to divine your purpose and uh, follow your bliss possibly. Well, meanwhile, I'm having to hammer out two or three jobs just to make ends meet. But, you know, I would have to say, aren't they the people, those struggling, like... That needed the most? Yeah. Like, so what, how can we unlearn these biases? Well, some of this is systemic, right? So so we can talk about individuals taking it upon themselves to do, uh, to do things that's best for them. Um, and I've seen this happen, and it actually, because the systems um, at play, we think about our commons, right? So... It, the things that are supposed to be accessible that keep our uh, economy going, the commons aren't so common <laughs> to to everyone, right? Yeah. They're they're impacted by it, but they don't get to be influence uh, influencers of it. And so, um, I think that there are a lot of of people that, um, again, they deal with this on an individual level, but then they face. So, if I take uh, a day. Right. We, we, we talk about the mental health days. Right. But that's not part of my my package. That's not part of mm-hmm. my my employment. Pack. I work a nine to five, you know, hourly rate job. I don't have mental health days. I have sick yeah. days, but I also have four kids. And so yep. even when I'm sick, I have to I have to push through because when my kids are sick, I don't have the money to pay for my kids to be somewhere when they're sick. So I can't be off when I'm sick. And so you just kind of have this snowball effect. I told someone, if I can just share this quick story, I told someone um, privilege comes in so many forms. It wasn't a joke. I was, I mean, I was joking around with them, but what I was saying wasn't funny. I said, you know, I realized, because I I have some friends that they they were talking about how much money they spent um, on lunch. And, and so they were like, they had to put themselves on a X amount of dollar a week budget. And I, you know, I kind of chuckled and I said, you know what, if I plan my week right, because of where I am 
in my professional life, in my my personal interaction, I could go an entire week and never pay for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. If I have an 8 o'clock meeting, I'm going to have some Panera. If I have a 12 o'clock meeting, they're going to have some maybe Panera or Jimmy John or some kind of salad, right? If I if I go to a late night uh, event, I'm going to have heavy hors d'oeuvres or maybe even dinner. Because And so I'm like, when was the last time that I thought about paying for the people who need the things the most are in a different place in the infrastructure, in the system. And so those of us who actually could probably afford to pay for lunch, never think about paying for lunch because where we are, lunch is already afforded. Mm -hmm. Breakfast is already afforded. So when you talk about self-care, you have to think about people are showing up into a system that doesn't appear to care. Yeah. So self-care takes on a different thing. It takes on the role of self-preservation. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And I, <clears throat> what we do, what I think about so much now, it's micro and macro, uh-huh. like really um, individual work and teaching and coaching, but also like I'm, I'm drawn to how, like, what is my part of culture shift and how organizations, how our community, how, how do we make th- these very, to me, basic needs of self-actualization uh, that's that's an important part of the human experience. How do we make that accessible to everybody? And then this process of unlearning, how do you know I, as a white woman, uh, a straight, you know married white woman, help people that uh, that aren't in that aren't like me? Life. Yeah, that how you know, without coming across as patronizing or um, elitist, you know, but but I do fundamentally believe that everybody has the right uh, to pursue their fullest potential, um, and, and and wanting to help do that work in a non pejorative way. And so you actually just did it, right? So you you talk about the the idea and the concept, irregardless of the condition. Um, one of the things that I try to do when I talk to organizations is, you know, don't create. A, a role or a space or a policy or a procedure based on personality. Right is right. Mm. What is needed is what is needed. So create what's needed. And then the personalities are just something that you'll have to finagle and understand. But like you're filling a gap. So right now, humanity is crying out. Yes. For a salvation of itself, right? So how do you get people back to a place where every human has value. We're not going to talk about the social construct of race. We're not going to talk about disastrous economies. I saw the other day, um, it was a joke. Uh, it actually wasn't a joke, but CNN said, it was It was really funny. CNN said <laughs> that the world, um, <laughs> that the world um, debt is $217 trillion. Um, and so somebody came back and said, who do we owe? The Decepticons? Like... <laughs> Because it's at the world, like the world, like $217 trillion. When you see stats like that, and then they go the next day and they move the doomsday clock forward, right? Because like we're ruining everything. And so how do we get back to this place where value of humanity is what's important? Well, what you're saying kind of reminds me of uh, just in general, like I think that 
society's trend, you know, towards community or the breakdown uh, of of community uh, and generationally, uh, as I've been understanding it, and it feels like we're in a breakdown kind of period where where communities are are we're very fragmented. We're very we're we're in front of our phones. We're 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 you know there's there is a huge breakdown of of religion. There's there people don't even they don't really know where to go. So I, I, know, I know it's aspirational, but, but how do we build uh, through maybe unlearning and, and also educating? How do we build a community for everyone? So you, you have to define, again, taking, taking everything at face value. Let's define this thing that we're calling community. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk a little bit through the lens of um, African-Americans in, in this country. So community means that you you have a set of people, systems, infrastructure that are working together for a common goal. That's community. Okay, right. right? Yeah. Just give or take. That's no Webster. That's LaQuisha, right? So give or take, that's what a community is. Um, even through Jim Crow, even through, um, you know, uh, post, post-Reconstruction, early Jim Crow, um, there have been black communities there were black communities in this country. You cannot find a black community in this country. Let me explain it to you. They were burned down. You had places like Black Wall Street, where you had in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and a full economy. They had buses. They had an airplane. They had black businesses that, and you have to go back and read early 1920s, it was burned down by the Klan. But this was an economy driven for the people that lived there. Yeah, I heard I right? think I recently came across that that history that was really buried. Yes. That was a very buried very buried. You know. But there were multiple versions of that model, which was the black community. If you go down just down the street in, in Atlanta, you had Sweet Auburn. The Sweet Auburn community was an ecosystem, was an economy of black business owners for the people that lived in that community, the schools. So there was, you know, there was a community. Well, this is what happens when you started fighting. And I'm going to probably get beat over the head for this, but that's okay. So we started fighting for integration. Right. Um, And so what happens is so take a take a city like Winston-Salem, North Carolina, the safe bus company, which was uh, a the largest African-American-owned bus line. They, they In the early 30s, 1930s, they had like 35, 40 jitney buses owned by about 20 black businessmen. They ran their own bus line. So you have them now hearing the narrative in the South, right there in the South too, uh, Winston-Salem, but still, but deep South um, in Alabama with the bus boycotts who were fighting to sit on the front of a bus that they didn't own. Right? So this that was think about civil rights. So we're fighting because yeah. it was about dignity. It wasn't about economics. It was about dignity. So that was a valid fight because you had people who were being oh, denigrated yeah. having to sit in the back of the bus. But the reality is when the bus shows up, you got there at the same time as the people in the front of the bus. You just were in the back. And so what happened though was when integration happened, so now you have people who only rode on those safe buses in Winston-Salem who now want to be able to ride in the front of the bus of the white bus companies. And so, and so you see economies getting uh, stronger off of what used to exist. So now the, the community 
the economic piece of the community of the black community gets watered down. It gets broken up. And so it's integrated. So you're not necessarily saying to integrate. You're saying like build, build, maybe build. You said, how do we create a community yeah. for all? Uh-huh. The problem yeah. was in integration and, and I tell people this, even with school integration, um, it only it only went one way. It wasn't like white kids were coming to black schools. Ooh, black yeah. kids were bused to white school. Like, and that's what happened in a lot of areas with integration. Wow, that's a great point. And yeah. so then economy spreads and it benefits those where it comes into, where it flows into. Mm. But then now you have communities that are barren. So then what happens? You no longer have black communities. If you look around the, the United States, you don't see those communities in cities in Chicago and Atlanta, the way we used to, the way we used to. And so now you have neighborhoods. So what happens when you start looking at what's happening with us on an individual basis, when you're saying things like the, the early 80s, late 70s drug epidemic, when you're looking at now our opiate, irregardless of race, we're looking at these. So now you have people who are getting these long sentences, um, mainly people of color who are getting these long sentences. So family, I think about my own father, you know, he went to jail for drugs. Uh, he was a corrections uh, officer for the city where we live. And so he sold drugs on the side and then he ended up using drugs. He did 21 years in federal prison. There was no way for our family to recover a father missing for 21 years. Now that was his choice, but there was a system at play because I have friends who don't look like me, who fathers have done the same thing, who got some time, if any time, or they were able to pay, right? And so you have all of these systems that are working. And so now you don't have individuals anymore. So the person that I used to know, the people that I used to could depend on, the neighbors are no longer there. So I no longer have community. I actually don't even have a neighborhood. All I have left is the hood, which are all of the ills that we look at for society um, cloaked in uh, infrastructure that creates a capitalist yeah. Permanent underclass. Yeah, it's well, it's obviously just, we've asked you a oh loaded question. It's yeah, hard. I told you she's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, because you know, in some ways, you you want to be able to build that community yes. in your own neighborhoods. At the same time, there's a way that that there often these communities are confined and not allowed to get purchase real estate in in, in other places. Yes. So you travel a lot. I do. And I'm curious. On purpose. Uh, <laughs> that's right. Uh, what communities are doing this well? What are, are there any out there that we should look at, learn from, uh, peek into, ask questions about? Um, or is it all, it's kind of like, it's a struggle everywhere. It's a struggle everywhere. And there are pockets. Um, there could be, because I, I don't think I can be truly objective um, because I do look at things through a lens of faith. Um, and so I believe I'm, I'm an eternal optimist. Um, so I believe that there's good to be found in any situation. Um, so with that being said, I don't know a full city that has, has the prescription for all of this, right. For mm -hmm. the individual people, for the, you know, the workforce development, for the creation of jobs and for the, the housing market and for the, you know, I, I don't know anywhere that that's doing it well. I think we can kind of do a soft scrape across, uh, across our country, uh, across our country. 
And excuse me. <coughs> excuse me. Yeah, get a drink. <coughs> that one choked me up. <laughs> <laughs> we can edit that out. Okay. I think that um we can do a soft scrape across the country and okay. pull some best practices, understanding that this work though is not um it's contextual. It's it's so based on the context, based on who 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 is the or who are the lever pullers, right? Mm-hmm. In any city, um, who's willing to relinquish power? One of the um, mm. greatest. Okay, I say uh, that again. Who is willing to, to relinquish, relinquish power? power? Boom. Yeah, I feel like that's huge. That's that. That's the. That's the question every city should be asking. Yes. Every person should be asking themselves. How? What kind of power am I? I yes. Shelley willing to relinquish? To bring about the community that I say I want. Yes, one of my um, my creative spaces in my in my house. I have a plaque, and it says, "Create the things you wish existed." Mm. And and I have to think about. I'm like, what is it that I want to see? Because there's there's it's easy to identify the problem, but what is this? I don't want to focus on the problem. What is it that I wish existed? Mm. What and I continually, when you think about growth mindset, that's part of my my process. Like, how do I restructure my thinking not to focus and identify the problem? Because we do, like I said, in business, hey, identify the gap. I tell my clients, you know what? I need you to create a product that people unconsciously purchase and habitually use. <laughs> right. Don't think about yeah. what's missing. Just think about what people unconsciously purchase, habitually use, like paper towels. What's on your hands that you can't wipe your hand on a towel in your regular house? Right. Right. You're not fixing cars at the uh, dinner table. Um, I think, you know, we <laughs> we we kind of conclude, you know, each each of our episodes with mm-hmm. asking you three questions. I feel like you, you just answered in a way, what does big self look like in a society of non-equality? I feel like you you kind of just you you answered that. And um and that's that's there's some profound stuff for us to to unpack here. Um, I'm curious, you know, you say that you're, you're always learning and, and I think that I tell you what, podcasts are, are helpful to me to be constantly learning as well, because instead of like listening to some rock and roll or something on my, on my commute to, to work, I'm turning on some really cool podcasts and it's, and it does feed you and it does shift your mindset. Um, well, can you tell us, uh, um, what is a, just what's a book that's impacting you right now? Uh, that's, you know, we could say saving you, but but just like that you would like to to share that uh, maybe we could spread the word about. So I'll geek out on you for a minute and and say, so I have to read three books since I finished uh, school. Uh, you know, once you go to college and so long, you just get into this mode. And so I have to read three books at a time. I cannot read. I do that too. I, I kind of re- switch around. Yes. I like I earmark them and highlight and reference them. Three books at a time. Yeah. Got to do it. So, um, so I'll, I'll say, um, one of the books that I reread every two years is it's called Jesus CEO. Um, the Leadership Practices of Christ. I think the author is uh, Laurie, L-A-U-R-I-E. You've told me about that Rath. one before. I, yeah, yeah, it's written It's written like a devotional. It's very easy to read, has questions at the end of every like page and a half type of chapter structure. Um, but I love it. I love it. Um, the other book would probably be um, In the Manner of Color, In the Matter of Color. 
um, by Higginbotham. Um, and it basically takes you through uh, the construct of race in this country through the law, through the eye of the law and how our laws were written um, to create what we're seeing um, as this race-based society. Um, and what was the, th- I just finished the book, Lord. Oh, uh, this, no, my new book, Essentialism, The Discipline of Doing Less. Yes, I think it's called The Discipline of Doing Less. I think the author is McCohen. Okay. M-C-K-O-W-E-N. I need I to read that one. Essentialism. Yeah. Um, shout out to Megan Jones over at the Community Foundation for that recommendation. Yes. It's an amazing hey, Megan. book. It's an amazing book. I, I do love your idea of creating what you want to see. I, I, that's one of my big takeaways from part of this conversation. And I think that that is, is some, one of the aspirations of Big Self is, is creating that which we do want. Yes. You know, that's to take on a complicated issue. That's, um, that's a pretty powerful statement right there. So I want people to know where to find you. <laughs> you you can find me at Delta Concourse <laughs> E in Atlanta, Georgia, in Atlanta, Georgia, going to Brazil. Yes, on Tuesday. <laughs> yes, um, but you can you can find me. My website is www.unlearneverythingandlive.com. That's www.unlearneverythingandlive.com. You are uh, yeah, you're 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 going. You're international. You're you're okay. uh, you're wanted all over the world. Thanks for thanks for making it to our. Uh, modest studio Look out for here. my posters want it <laughs> no i i am i consider myself to be um a marketplace minister um that's how i i've i've been praying for what i do and like some kind of honing in right i'm focusing on this narrowing and what i do is marketplace ministry so i'm able to go um into boardrooms and and synagogues and churches and community mm-hmm. um because really it's about bringing the freedom that I believe that the gospel of Jesus proclaims. And that is, you know, we were all created with a purpose. We all have something to offer. That's why we're here. Can we do that thing? That It's simple as that, right? Can we do, do that which we were created to do for kingdom building? How do we build, you know, as, as a child, we all learn. I'm not going to make this super spiritual, but, I'm, you know, um, as a child, we all learn the Lord's Prayer, right? And one of those lines is, on earth as it is in heaven. And everybody's always trying, oh, and I get to heaven. But the reality is, is we're supposed to be on earth as there's a structure we that we should be that. breaking down here. Yeah. And so what does that look like in every community around the world? Well, you know I love you. Love you You're too. my sister. Yes, ma'am. And um, I got up early to come up here with Yes, you did. Right? She woke up early. <laughs> um, and you she Laquisha is a force of nature in the most positive way. And you are impacting lives oh everywhere. And um I just adore you and I'm so thankful for you and for being here and helping us launch this podcast. Thank you. Thank you. This has been amazing. Thanks for tuning in to the Big Self Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, join in the community at the Big Self Society. You can also find us at big underscore self on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. What show made an impact on your thinking, your habits, your decision making, or anything else? Anyone you'd like us to reach out to and have on the show, let us know.